If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Lipton Green Tea is a simple way to up your everyday healthy habits. Green tea contains flavonoids, which are naturally occurring bioactives found in tea, vegetables, and fruit. Just two cups of Lipton Green Tea can help support health by providing approximately the same amount of flavonoids as eating 20 pounds of cooked broccoli. Available in new Signature Blend Green Tea and new Lemon Peach and Honey Ginger Green Tea. Try new Lipton Green Tea today. And welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Durimple. Now, this is the very first of a brand new series, and uh, we thought we'd take a look at the Ottomans. But then we thought, actually, let's not get ahead of ourselves, because to understand the Ottomans, you have to start looking at the world that they took over and the world that they transformed. And that you can only do by looking at the great empire of Byzantium, whose capital, Constantinople, they took as their own. It's a subject, I think, of huge fascination. And the full story, I think, of both empires are really very little known outside a fairly small world of specialists. But the Byzantines are an incredible story in themselves. And we're going to start with them because they were repositories of all that had been salvaged from the fall of classical civilization. The new Rome of Constantine, defended by the greatest city walls ever built, the Theodosian land walls, kept the city safe for a thousand years of attack against Persians, Arabs, Avars, Vikings, and many others, preserving the languages and the libraries of the Western classical world after the fall of Rome. And we're lucky to have with us today to talk about it, one of the great historians of our time, and also a good friend of both Anita and I, the great Peter Frankopan. Yay. Now, listen, Peter Frankopan, you are better known um, as the author of the extraordinarily successful Silk Road. Million sellings. Yeah. I, I mean, and you're working on something else, which I think is going to be possibly, arguably, even bigger, um, the forthcoming history of, of climate change and how the natural world shaped 
history. It's going to be called the Earth Transformed. But we know that Byzantium is where you started. It is the thing that sets your heart aflutter. It was your very first book. So we couldn't think of, of absolutely anybody else who could do this. Can I just start though with something as, as somebody who is so enamored of all things Byzantine and who's who studied it very, very deeply. Even the word Byzantine, it's got sort of historically negative connotations. I'm thinking from my own world of politics, you know, when somebody says, oh, there are Byzantine operations going on, it, it, it suggests dark art, something sneaky, something behind the scenes, and rarely for the greater good. This must bug the hell out of you. Uh there are quite a few. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I've been a huge fan <laughs> of both of you individually and also collectively since this podcast launched. So I've been checking my emails for days to see whether I'd be invited. And finally, finally, you've managed to create a topic just so that I can, just for me. So I'm very grateful. There would be no escape, Frank and Pat. No escape no whatsoever. Escape. No, look, I, I'm thrilled. I think it's just, it's fantastic to be doing podcasts like this about history and trying to open up topics about areas, people's places that we don't pay that much attention to. So uh, does it bug me? I mean, in the grand scheme of things to worry about in life, how people misuse words. Um, it's quite a good dinner party sort of chat about which other words are misused and uh, things are not understood. But they're absolutely right. The, the word Byzantine has terrible connotations. You know, it's quoted by politicians all the time as being synonymous with uh, smoke and mirrors, with too much red tape, uh, with things that don't really work, that they don't really look, you know, they, they look different to how they really are in reality. And, it, and, and it's a byword for over-elaborate, too much of a civil service, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess what's interesting to me in the first case is, you know, are they right? I mean, first of all, I, I know they're not right because none of the people who use the word have ever studied the Byzantine Empire because no one studies the Byzantine Empire. You study Henry VIII. <laughs> if you're very lucky and listen to this podcast, you know a bit about the Mughals and, and empires. Uh, but the Byzantines are pushed out of history for, for all sorts of reasons. But it's curious to me that a word is misused by people who really don't know what they're talking about. So if you study the Byzantine Empire, the starting point might be, how come something lasted for more than a thousand years? And isn't it odd that it lasts for a thousand years if it's run by bureaucratic nincompoops? <laughs> Rather than maybe, just maybe, the Byzantines were onto something with how to make a state work. And I mean, here we are in 2022, or whenever you're listening to this, we've had a pretty chaotic year here with rulers being forced out of office after a few days palace coups exactly daggers in the back yeah yeah pushed out the window never never heard from again right and so yeah it doesn't it doesn't annoy me that that we look at the byzantines as somehow all being murders in the bathtub and uh, inefficiency yeah it does partly because as a historian the whole point is to provide perspective but the byzantines are not i suppose they're saving graces they're not the only ones who get terribly badly treated by history so too do our our, our Mongol friends, they, you know, Genghis Khan has not got a great reputation. They get a worse press. Even they even ha they even manage having bureaucrats in them. Well, there's, there's a certain type of <laughs> British politician who quite often will describe themselves as being to the right of Genghis Khan, which betrays both their sort of mindless <laughs> ignorance about uh, what Genghis Khan might have thought or what his political platform might have been. But also that the Mongols were, were empire builders of a hugely capable nature. And then, uh, of course, your friends who you're going to concentrate on uh, later in the series, the Ottomans, who are sort of widely described, almost always described as the sick man of Europe and a fading rubbish empire that didn't really compete with the way we do things here in Britain. Who also lasted 400 years. Uh, well, this is why we've come for a podcast. I, I, I call it 700 years. So it depends when you want to start. The, it depends when you want to start the clock on the Ottomans. Yeah, I've never been that good at my maths. <laughs> if we pick Osman as the, the founder of the Ottoman Empire, he's in the 1250s, and the Ottoman Empire finally ends in 
in at the end of the First World War. So these big empires that last a long time, particularly like the Byzantines, they, they get squeezed out of the way because they're quite inconvenient for how we think about history. But also, there is a hashtag fake news thing that goes on with the Byzantines. And we're, we're sort of going to get into the meat of this. But I'm just really struck by when, when you first do a flick of, of who they were. You know, you've got the prejudice that comes from historians like Gibbon, or even go back even further. And you've got sort of like the Bishop of Cremona, who's just so entertainingly horrible and rude about the Byzantines. He's nasty. And those are the things that kind of fly around. But they would, wouldn't they? Because... It's stories told by the opposition in a way. Well, I loved, I love, that's why I love your podcast. Okay, so dealing with two clever historians. Uh, I don't think I've ever in my, in my life as an academic been asked about Luke Prand of Cremona, uh, <laughs> apart from uh, academic conferences. So uh, my heart is singing, Anita. Uh, Luke Prand, uh, Luke Prand is a 10th century archbishop who goes on two journeys to Constantinople. He is a great friend of this podcast. I'll have you know, Peter Frankpan. You've got to tread carefully here. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's one of my fantasy dinner party guests. And he goes on two visits. And the first visit is quite successful and he writes very nice things. Uh, second visit, um, his mission goes unaccomplished and he has to come back with face covering or backside covering excuses. And so it's not fake news. It's just that's what diplomacy, that's what di- diplomats do. They, they write things that reflect what they want to tell their, their masters. It's so undiplomatic. Now, can, I, can I read you a bit so everyone knows what we're talking about? Please. I mean, it's so, it's so delicious and gorgeous. But this is, so yeah. he's come back from a, a rather um, unpleasant visit. I think this is one of the unsuccessful ones. And he's describing um, the emperor. And he says, he's a monstrosity of a man, a dwarf, fat-headed with a tiny <laughs> mole-like eyes. He says that he's short, fat, dark-skinned, not a very strong warrior, but coincidentally, a fox by nature in perjury and falsehoods. He is a Ulysses. <laughs> so they didn't get on. I don't think he liked him very much. Who is that? Is that Basil or who's that? No, it's, it's a Nikephorus II Focus. Okay, ah. he's that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's that, that guy. guy. Just, just, just remind listeners, Anita, just say it again, because I, well, I, I wonder whether Nikephorus Focus, he's crazy by name. He was a great general. I, I'm a great fan of uh, Nikephorus. He was a sort of um, Gordon Brown type of leader where, you know, he was a bit dour. But read that description again, because, I mean, are we absolutely certain that might not be extremely attractive to the right kind of person? I don't know which girls you hang out with, or, or indeed boys, but I'll try it again. Let's yeah. have a run at this. Yeah. A monstrosity of a man. Well, that could be the translation. Yeah. Okay. Fat-headed with tiny yeah. mole eyes. Very attractive. He is described as being, oh yes, contrary, here we are, contrary to how an actual Germanic emperor is meant to look like, short, right. fat, dark-skinned, not a warrior, but coincidentally, a fox by nature in perjury and in falsehood, a Ulysses. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, you know, I'd like to send Luke Pran to bring him back from the dead. Sounds gorgeous. Yeah, I wonder what he'd say about Elon Musk or about uh, Xi Jinping or, or about um, Rishi Sunak. You know, I think that it's interesting that, that the body shaming uh, a thousand years ago, that's how you show that someone is a bad person. It's not that he's, you know, not as victorious and not as rich as you think. But he doesn't look the part. And of course, the Germanic, you know, nice, nice blonde hair, blue eyes and straight on a horse. You know, that makes the person who hears that feel good about themselves. But um, I'm pretty sure that's not what Nike for us, the second focus actually looked like. Although I'll go with the Wiley as a pox line. Uh, but, you know, I think that this, is, this, this forms into a pattern about how 
powerful people in exotic kingdoms who are more powerful than oneself are described. And it's a bit like the early descriptions of the British coming to India, how they describe the Mughal court of Thomas Rowe being rude about Jahangir or yeah, Terry. That's right. And all that These stuff, are sort yeah. of fat rulers and they, they, they have lives of luxury and they overindulge and they don't make any decisions. And yet, you know, the bottom line is that running an empire is not actually that easy and keeping your court in place requires some quite good soft skills as well as some pretty, some pretty good hard skills. So I think it, it sort of makes you play the man, not the ball. And so what, what, what uh, Luprad is doing there, which he doesn't write that, by the way, about uh, Constantine VII, who's in, in power when he goes there first time. He says he's got excellent table manners, good with small animals, <laughs> pets, and children. Uh, <laughs> Nikephorus gets slammed because uh, Nikephorus doesn't give Luprad what he wants, which is, um, in the first instance, equality. In the second instance, a sort of a, a nice... A backside kiss for for Luprez boss, but also is not in the business of wanting to give away recognition of titles or imperial brides, and, and that that is that means that you've you've got to come back and you've got to smear and, and body shaming, height shaming are quite good ways of doing that. So, Peter, give us the the counter argument in a sense. So, why would you want people to care about Byzantium? Because we're just going to go into seeing the whole of Byzantium smashed up in the next episode. So, <laughs> why why should we be sad about that? <laughs> Well, you shouldn't be sad. You shouldn't be sad about it. I mean, everyone everyone cuts their cloth their own way. I mean, I think what what <laughs> what I'm sort of slightly surprised about is that it's actually quite interesting, and it's quite interesting both from a kind of anecdotal point of view, but it's also quite interesting from a from a, from a micro history point of view. It's also quite interesting from a sort of macro point of view. You know, how do empires rise? How do they stay stable? How do you stay stable if you're not expanding territorially? Uh, how do you manage to keep uh, an economy? Basically, inflation-free, apart from a, a couple of moments of compression. We could do with a Byzantine Chancellor of the Exchequer at the moment. Well, you know, be careful what you wish for. Uh, you know, I'm available. Uh, you know, I think you, you, how, how does how does how does societies deal with major structural problems caused by pandemic disease? Where the Byzantines, they've got the two two of the greatest pandemics in global history: the Plague of Justinian, as it's known, in the 540s, and then the Black Death in the 1340s, uh, you know, how do you respond? How do you learn from those kinds of things? And then, of course, all the other things we think about today, like climate, like, you know, rise of the East and, you know, military intelligence and the world that the Byzantines work in and function is, is to do with the Black Sea and what's now Ukraine. It's to do with North Africa. It's to do with migrations. It's to do with Iraq and what's now Iraq and Iran, Persia, etc. and longer distance trade. There are so many things that I think have resonance, even if you can't apply what, what you learn from those. But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrific story. I suppose as a historian, the first thing is, how is it possible that we know nothing about this empire? You know, how can we know quite a lot about Henry VIII and his wives or Battle of, Battle of Hastings? Because I mean, let's say Battle of Hastings, 1066, wasn't even the most interesting thing that was happening in Europe at that time. But for us, it's the kind of seminal moment in British history. Well, I, I, so we're going to sort that out. That's what this podcast is about. It's because you're all absolutely about, right. Exactly. It's all about putting, <laughs> writing that wrong. But to do that, we need to go right back to the beginning, right back to the fundamentals. So let's go back okay. to um, the emperor who decides that there's going to be a new Rome in Constantinople. He's got two sons. Talk us, talk us through you know, the actual bifurcation of Rome at the end. Okay, well, we could be here for hours. No, the short version. We're, we've got all the time <laughs> the sh- in the world, Peter Frank. No, we don't. The short version, Frank Pan. Don't oh, come listen on, to him. Let's do this as a special. Come on, seven-hour podcast. Seven-hour special. <laughs> people do this while they're walking their dogs, and just think of the dogs, okay? Just well, think of the dogs. If people haven't flicked onto the next episode already, well, they should be rewarded. I mean, so part, part of the problem is where do we start with Byzantium, where's the start? Where's the chronological starting point? So, these, this empire does not call itself Byzantine. 
it calls itself a Ro- the, not a Roman Empire. They call themselves the Roman Empire. So the starting point is is Rome when it turns from a republic into an empire with the with the Emperor Augustus Octavian, who becomes renamed Augustus after the Battle of Actium in 30 BC. Then expands this enormous empire that by about the year 300 covers more or less all of North Africa, um, Spain and Portugal, right the way through. France, Gaul, even here in Britain, up to Hadrian's Wall, you know, with these letters, God help us, it's cold and the food is miserable and we're always being attacked from, from the north. Exactly. And then and then the, the heartlands of the Roman Empire are really in Illyria. So what's now Croatia, Dalmatia, but Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece, and then right the way through into you know, the Emperor Trajan reaches Basra in what's now Iraq. So this is an enormous empire. By, by the year 300, it's basically so big that it's thought to be too big for one person to run. So there are, there are, there's an emperor of the West and an emperor of the East. And uh, Constantine, who you mentioned, uh, decides that it's time to build a new mega city in the East on the on the banks of the Bosphorus in an old Greek town, pre-Hellenic town called Byzantion, uh, which is where the later name comes from, which he calls New Rome. And uh, not surprisingly, because he puts a lot of cash into it, soon people start to call it the city of Constantine, Constantinopolis, and that then becomes the great queen of cities that survives right up until the present day, and known as the now known as Istanbul, probably a sort of version of in the city Istanbuli uh, in Greek. Uh, just you know, so it's just known as the, the city, a bit like New York is Big Apple, big city. So Constantine is important because he refounds a new city, New Rome, to mirror the parallel structure of a Rome in the West and a Rome in the East. And I suppose at that point is typically when most of us. Think that's the sort of beginning point where we can talk about Eastern Roman Empire that then then is rebranded not not by anybody at the time, but by later Western historians as the Byzantine Empire. And when does it reach its peak, the the Eastern Roman Empire? Which under Justinian, when would you say the moment, the kind of the glory days of of, of Byzantium? Well, we have we have a kind of we have a funny way of thinking about things here. I think here in the West, we tend to equate peak with largest landmass. You you might want to say that Britain's highest cultural point was, was in the 1960s with the Beatles at a point of economic trough and so on. It's all, so it slightly depends what you want. So I mean, if you want the cultural highlights, you might pick something called the Macedonian Renaissance, this kind of late 9th century to the 10th century, a, a time of profound experimentation with literary forms, art, culture, music, and so on, all brought to an end by our, our new friend, like Ephraim II, who for all of his um, his skills and interest, was not a man of the dance floors and was not interested in scholarship. He was a military man. He wouldn't have made it through his admission his admission lecture at Worcester College, Oxford. That's right. Well, it's very hard to get through those these days. <laughs> uh, can I just explain? This is a very entre-nous joke, but this is what Peter is responsible for, breaking the hearts of fresh-faced young people who don't get into his college. So just say... No, no, no. As, as, yeah, no, as luck would have it, I'm not responsible for any anybody's heartbreaks. No, no, no. I'm, I'm kept, I'm kept safe here from the but you know the running the gauntlet is we're just in the process of of going through that yet again in oxford so no, it's terrifying experience for undergraduates but there are lots of different high watermarks of where the empire is at its largest so justinian is considered a, a hugely important moment in history of the eastern roman empire justinian emperor in the 500s he takes the throne in 527 reigns until 565 i already mentioned that the plague that happens during his reign but he he also sees a rebuilding of large parts of the city, most notably the great cathedral of Hagia Sophia, which was, the, if I'm not mistaken, the biggest 
uh, church, the biggest building in Europe until the Renaissance. So does that look today as it did then? I mean, is, is that what we see if we go to Istanbul? Fewer minarets in those days. <laughs> Fewer minarets, uh, aka no minarets. Some of the, the, the decorations, uh, many of the spectacular mosaics have been uncovered. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an absolute knockout city. You know, you, you find visitors to Constantinople saying that they walk inside and it's as though the roof hovers uh, being suspended over the rest of the structure. And it says this is obviously a place where God lives because it takes your breath away. And listeners who be lucky enough to visit and go walk inside will know exactly what, what, what that means. It still does today. Absolutely. It's dazzling. Yeah. Absolutely breathtaking as, a, as an architectural structure, but also as a house of God. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary and lavishly endowed and decorated. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a showstopper, but it was one of many, many showstoppers. Justinian went through a phase of building several of these churches or, or, or several of these churches being built during his reign. So there were lots of kind of moments of, of ebb and flow. Bethlehem, Ravenna, Sinai. Oh, I think it's, yeah, I think, I think bigger, bigger and possibly, slightly controversially, possibly slightly better than many of those in terms of the the, what, what, what the attention that was lavished on it. So that is the kind of the signature building. So again, some of my colleagues would say that's when we should think about the Eastern Roman Empire starting um, with Justinian. And although Constantine, the predecessor 200 years earlier, is the first emperor to convert to Christianity, the character of the empire starts to shift in the five in the 500s and 600s. By the six, by the middle of the 600s or the 7th century, uh, the, the, the bureaucrats start to begin using Greek rather than Latin. And that's seen as a kind of big, important turning point in the kind of nature of the empire. But there's no particular reason why that should be the case. I mean, that's, scholars argue about that and think it makes a big deal. Yeah. I heard somebody say that actually Justinian was the last emperor to speak Latin. And then, uh, uh, and he didn't even speak it well. I mean, it, do we know that as a fact, or is that just pure conjecture? Yeah, that, that's, that's that's dinner party banter. That's someone just bad mouthing him. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yes, it's okay. banter. My Sephiroth focus had brilliant Latin. <laughs> no, no, I think that that, that uh, you know, one of my one of my great heroes or heroines is a is a Byzantine princess by the name of Anna Comina. Anna Comina. Oh, I Big, love her. She's my favourite. Love her. So she's the first, the author of the first narrative history written in the European language in the 12th century, and she is, has no problem with Greek or Latin. So um, I think that there's bilingualism carries on. I mean, it's an elite thing to speak languages normally, unless you are migrants, as we call them to these days, but, you know, unless you have a, a reason to be speaking other languages. But, but, and so the, the courts are, will typically be monolingual, but elites and some of the members of the court will, will, were perfectly proficient and, and to being able to translate uh, in real time. You've mentioned Anna Komnina, and thanks to you, she's become one of my favourite people uh, of all time. But I think I think you need to say a little more about who she is, whose daughter she was, and why she's so important. Oh well, that's no thanks to me. Gosh, I've done nothing. No, it's all thanks to her. No, she's so. Here you get you get five hundred years now in the space of about ninety seconds. We should say quickly. This is Peter's first book. Go by the call from the east by Peter Frankopan. Uh. Well, no, I, I'm going to race now from. Uh, I'm going to race from Justinian from the year 565 when he dies up until um, the 1100. So in that sort of 400-year intervening period, uh, the things that are significant and important are, first of all, um, the collapse of the Western of the province in, in Western Europe, where uh, essentially people stop building in stone, literacy levels plummet, uh, long-distance trade collapses, and the only sort of markets are part of local networks in small little clusters. In the eastern part of the Mediterranean, uh, life carries on pretty well. It goes, it's, it's fine. I mean, the pandemic is obviously an issue, 
Uh, but this is a moment of transformation, lots of new peoples arriving, Bulgars and Slavs and so on. But the big story comes in the 620s and 630s with the rise of Islam after uh, the Prophet Muhammad. And that creates, in short order, a massive Arab empire, uh, originally sort of spreading out from Mecca, Medina, centered on the great city of Damascus, that over the course of about three or four decades, spreads right the way across North Africa into northern in, into the middle of Spain, and then eastwards goes more or less up to the Himalayas by the 700s and into what's now Pakistan, to Dabul and so on. And uh, for the next two or three hundred years, you have a sort of standoff between this great Arab empire and the great surviving Christian empire of the eastern Mediterranean, centered on Constantinople. And through that period, you have uh, moments of compression and of attack, of reconciliation. You've got iconoclasm where you don't show images of human beings and of, uh, so on and images and statues and artworks smashed by the Christian world, possibly in balance to ideas about images in the Islamic world too. But by about the 850s, by about 900, uh, the Roman world is back in the ascendancy and starts to push eastwards to reclaim territories that have been captured by by the Arabs and we're now, are now under Islam. And why that's a problem, why it's, a, why it's an issue, is that well, when, the, when the Christian church establishes itself, there are five primary patriarchs who sit across the structure of the Christian church. We have um, Rome and Constantinople, but also Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch in what's now Syria, and Jerusalem. And those three, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria, come under um, Arab suzerainty. So it rechanges how the Christian church is structured, and it basically leaves the patriarch of Constantinople and his parallel in Rome as the kind of two primary figures. There are still patriarchs in these great cities, in the East as well. But it means that this, the Christianity is becomes very closely identified with what the empire means. And by about the year 1000, 1025, Basil the Bulgar Slayer, one of the great names in world history, uh, he dies having, having pushed the empire back into the Caucasus, uh, into what's now northern Iraq and Syria, and then to the north right the way back to recover most of most of the Balkans. So in 1025, the, the Byzantine Empire is sitting quite pretty. It controls the bottom half of Italy, or not the bottom, just below Na- Naples and below, and is looking like it's in the ascendancy. And into this world, you know, about three or four decades later, Anna Comnina is born. And this is a kind of moment where uh, we start to see an existential clash between the forces of Islam and the forces of Christianity with the Crusades. So, Peter, this is the point where, in a sense, our story for this series really picks up. Because at the end of the 11th century, as Anna Kamina is writing, the Seljuk Turks appear through what was Persia. Yeah. Well, the, the Seljuks are, I mean, so, so the world, you know, worlds I work on include the, the great nomadic peoples of Central Asia. And the Seljuk are one particular grouping that becomes successful militarily and politically in 1055, they reach Baghdad. They're brought in as mercenaries originally. They, they take over the apparatus of the Arab Empire based on, on Baghdad, which is the successor city of Damascus. Baghdad is built in the ninth century as a kind of massive cosmopolitan metropolis. And uh, the Seljuks establish themselves as powerful uh, rulers, undisputed rulers of that world. And then they start to park bands of, of nomads who are difficult sort of gap year teenagers looking for uh, cheap thrills and things to do on the kind of frontiers because you, you want people who are difficult and ambitious out the way you don't want them in the corridors of power where they might scare the horses and unsettle you you want them to go and provoke people elsewhere 
And uh, by the sort of 1060s, 1070s, Celtic bands are reaching deep into Anatolia, not for strategic reasons, but, but for, as raiding parties. And raiding parties are, are a bit like our intelligence services know today. It's very difficult to deal with sort of lone wolves and with small bands. It's quite easy to be able to do things at state to state level. But those kinds of, those, what starts off as pinpricks starts to become a rash and then starts to become a proper problem for the, for the, for the, empire in Constantinople. And in 1071, an emperor called Romanus IV, Diogenes Romanus IV, uh, decides to equip a massive army and head out to the east to teach these guys a lesson. And it doesn't go according to plan. So at that point, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back. Battle of Manzikert, 19th of August, 1071, after the break. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Lipton Green Tea is a simple way to up your everyday healthy habits. Green tea contains flavonoids, which are naturally occurring bioactives found in tea, vegetables, and fruit. Just two cups of Lipton Green Tea can help support health by providing approximately the same amount of flavonoids as eating 20 pounds of cooked broccoli. Available in new Signature Blend Green Tea and new Lemon Peach and Honey Ginger Green Tea. Try new Lipton Green Tea today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. Well, this is a breathless romp um, <laughs> through the, the, one of the most interesting and neglected um, periods of history. And we have no one better as our guide on the lead horse galloping ahead of us. Galloping towards the Battle of Manzikert as he yeah, speaks. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we left just before the break. Uh, we, were, we were teeing up to this important date of 1071 and the Battle of Manzikert. Tell us what happens. Well, it's not that important a date, actually. <laughs> oh my God. Just, uh, ow, this is like the ow, history boys ow, ow, that really hurt my feelings <laughs> why isn't it important everywhere really i've important. read it says it's really important why is it not important so this is how you get into worcester college oxford the emperor strikes grand at Manzika in 1071 the current the, the modern turkish town of malazgant and is uh, basically, uh, you know, from 3-0 up, manages to lose 4-3 in injury time. And, and not only gets defeated, but is captured in battle and made to supplicate, pay homage, or some form of ritual humiliation in front of the Turkish sultan called Alparslan. So it's, it is an important event, no question about that. I mean, I suppose it's like what I said. Prince Charles being, <laughs> being arrested and being made to sort of, you know, kneel down in front of President Macron in Paris, right? So, I mean, it, it is hugely symbolic. That would make headlines. It would be headlines, yeah, front page, um, and it, uh, uh, and it, it has become a huge. It's become a totemic moment uh, for the Turkish people. So, on the Battle of Manzikert Day every year, you get a million people on the streets 
in Istanbul, in, in Turkey. It's, it's used by Turkish President Erdogan in particular to talk about the origins of Turkish nationhood, empire, success, victory, and so on. Actually, at the time, apart from it being a bit of a, you know, um, a, I mean, obviously it's a setback, Romanus doesn't have that many mates in Constantinople. He's got his position because he's the sort of second or third husband of, a, of an empress who is the daughter of a former emperor. So people think he's got his position through sort of, you know, not, not on merit. No one thought it was a great idea in the first place. Uh, so seeing him being humiliated, he doesn't have anybody really uh, losing any sleep about it. And in fact, he's, he's pushed out the way pretty much immediately. The key thing, though, is that Manzikert doesn't open the... I mean, used to, historians used to think this opened the floodgates to the invasion of Anatolia or Asia Minor, what's now Turkey. Turks coming into Anatolia, absolutely. Why doesn't it? Not, not only does it not do that, it, it probably stops them from happening, because one of the things that Alparslan does as part what seems some, some sort of agreement with the emperor is to try to contain his, his rowdy, uh, you know, Turks on tour, to try to keep them under control to not deliver the pinpricks because actually being uh, creating instability is, is quite bad for trade it's quite bad for business and it's quite bad for authority so if you get permission from the ruler to go bananas and go to tax city that's fine but if you go do it without permission then it looks like you're weak so there's a kind of constant balance and a threat so that mandicot victory for amongst some revisionist historians to do today whom i include myself it's hugely symbolic but actually it takes another 25 years for the turks to really make meaningful progress into Asia Minor, which and then when they do it, they do it quickly, suddenly, and it creates an alarm bell that goes off in Constantinople, where the then emperor uh, decides to, there's only one thing to do to call for help, and that's to appeal to the West. Can I just, I mean, just staying with Manzikert and, and just for a moment longer, because I'm, I'm fascinated. This, let's just remember, this is only a handful of years after 1066, but you've got the appearance um, of Anglo-Saxons and Normans meeting at Manzikert just, you know, in an eye blink after the Battle of Hastings? Well, some of the, some of the Anglo-Saxons who defeated Hastings uh, upstakes and had to Constantinople to go take imperial service. And they get, they get deployed, some into the Black Sea. That's a bit of an upgrade, isn't it? Having, having lost in the kind of local division, suddenly to find yourself in the Premier League. Out it's, and- it's, it's warmer and better paid. But, you know, if your options are shut down when you're taken over by a new hostile conqueror who's going to put all of his own people in power, it's a very, it's quite a logical thing to go and offer your services and your skill set to someone who is not just willing to pay for it, but also might be willing to look kindly on your status that you bring. So, you know, although the Normans are not an enormous number when they come into England and then around the British Isles, they are, you know, it is the end of an era. So there's an exodus of people go leaving and Constantinople is the magnet of choice. I mean, although... We think of it as being sort of unusual that people travelled. You know, Harold Hardrada, who, who is also the great figure of 1066 at Stamford Bridge, nothing to do with Chelsea Football Club. He is defeated 1066. He's got to do service with the emperor in Constantinople too. And got all cosy with the empress. I don't think that's probably correct. But yeah, the, 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 <laughs> let them, they, they say that sort of stuff. It is said. Yeah, it is yeah. said. What, which means he said... <laughs> Was mate said, and so it must be. It must be <laughs> he right. Told his mate. Yeah. Yes, I know. And and basically, the rest of the court went. You should be so lucky, mate. So you know, not true. You never know. I, I can't rule it out. Can't rule it out. But I think that in this in this in this kind of window, what is key is to be remembering how important you know the, the most connected ruling house in Europe at the time is in Kiev. You know the the way in which Europe is anchored is that the eastern parts of Europe are, and particularly the southeastern parts, I should say, are the rich wealthy, vibrant, literate, urban parts. 
and the western and northern parts, the bits that then later inherit the earth, literally, it's bands of castles and of barons building up their forts and their assets at the exclusion of anybody else. And they're not, you know, this, this is a time when Constantinople has a population of maybe half a million, Paris, London, maybe 10, 15, possibly 20,000. So the order of magnitude wow. of what we're looking at in the East is much more sophisticated. So let's move the focus just for a second from Constantinople itself and the Byzantines, who were not knocked back quite as much as we used to think at Manzikert, to the Turks themselves. So who are the Turks? Where do they start? Start in Kazakhstan or parts east? Where are they? Where, where would you trace the origin of the Turks? I to? don't think there's. I mean, I think one has to be careful about these sorts of things because people don't start. You know, movement is normal. Fluidity is normal. And the idea that, that, that there's an ancestral homeland. There's not a whistle blown at the beginning of play. Yeah. Well, I just think, I just think we need to be careful of that. It, you know, we sort of think, well, Turks, they must start here or somewhere in Kazakhstan. There's a kind of bunch of fields. But, you know, we, we never say that about English. Where do the English start? Or where do Indians start? And, and when people do ask those questions, there are very uncomfortable answers because it then turns into very quickly a discussion of what does it mean to be X, Y, and Z. And that asks things about genetics and, you know, and a whole bunch of... So I, I think that one, rather than thinking about where they actually come from, I think it's the, the, the great plains and steppes of Central Asia that more or less go from the northern parts of the Black... over the lip of the Black Sea, right the way through to the Korean Peninsula, are home to lots of people who are exploiting the natural environment for, for animal herding. Uh, but those the, the, the nomadic peoples work side by side with cities. So if you have animal herds, you want to sell their byproducts, dairy, meat, textiles, and so on, to people who can pay for them. And so you want to you want to live quite close to city populations because then you can you can get the things you want back in return, like brooches or uh, you know luxury objects, pepper and leather and things like that. But but just to clarify, there are. There are Turks stretching. I mean, I've just been writing about the Northern Way, who 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 come into into China in in the sixth seventh century. They're also Eastern Turks, aren't they? Well, I go to I go to supervision mode now. I get very very earnest. No, please do. No, no, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, no, you, you're wrong because they're not. They don't describe themselves as that. That's what they're described by other people. So when you allow other people to define you and to explain what you are ethically or religiously or whatever, then you're you're always on a on a uh, you know in a difficult situation. So histories that are written about different Turkic peoples and they're often written hundreds of years later. For example, Osman, the founder of the Ottoman Empire, there's zero information from when from his lifetime. Things that are written about him project backwards, often by one or two or three hundred years, and that's telling you a lot about what's thought to be important one or two or three hundred years later, but not necessarily anything accurate about, about the Ottomans or Osman at the time themselves. So what the Seljuks, insofar as we could tell, the Central Asian steppes are filled with lots of Turkic peoples who we essentially identify by the languages that they are speaking. So Turkic. Speaking a family of languages related to modern Turkish. Yeah, which are constantly changing, moving, borrowing to, and, and so on. Uh, and so, but occasionally what can happen is that one grouping can establish itself as political supremos over a much wider federation. So that's how we might think about the Mongols. It's a sort of single golden unit connected by blood marriage kinship to Chinggis Khan himself, who then preside over a massive confederation where other people also become Mongols as a result of their uh, Mongol overlordship. And so the Seljuks, it's a lot, a lot is about how the story is told about them, but they are a military elite who are dragged into the politics of the Abbasid Caliphate, or to the Caliphate of Baghdad, rather. Into what's now modern Iraq. Yeah. 
modern, modern Iraq, but it's at that time it's a world that connects most of Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and and that world that that the Seljuks uh, move into are they are highly dexterous at playing the political system well, and that's partly because the advantage of being uh, nomadic peoples in urban environments, which occasionally happens, is that you don't have alliances and allegiances that can also compromise you. You could be projected onto. So you're sort of quite a good third party candidate when people can't agree who they should choose. So the Seljuks become the kind of masters of, uh, of this enormous world, slightly by, by good skill, but by, by the ability to read the runes of, of, of how to take over, well, let's say small political extremists in other political systems have been quite good at forcing through Brexit's hardline policies. You can have small groups that become extremely effective, as has happened in the United Kingdom. But they become so effective that they are seen and perceived to be a threat, and so much so a threat to Constantinople that it starts saying, you know what, we need some reinforcements. We need a crusade to push back against these muscular types who are getting far too big for their boots. Um, speak to that a little bit and how successful or not those were. Uh, well, so th- that's one. Of, that, that's, a, that's a primary problem. So the Seljuks basically knock out mo- most of Asia Minor. The bit that is important is that the central arid plains of Asia Minor are less important than the rich uh, river valleys of the coast. When, when those fall, then there's a proper alarm bell going off. And the problem is that the, the emperor in Constantinople at the time, Alexius Komnenos, um, can't turn his attention to go and take them on head on because he's dealing also with problems to the north where a different set of nomadic peoples, Pechenegs and Kipchak Cumans, are causing problems and then further problems in the Balkans. So his hands are tied. There's a very good book about this, by the way, by me, uh, called The First Crusade the Call from the East. <laughs> it is a very good book by you. No, it is a very, very good book by you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he appeals to he appeals to to the to the Pope for help and to Western leaders, and he hooks the appeal uh, from what we can tell centers it on threats to Jerusalem and the Holy Land, and so he's not just saying we uh, Byzantines or Romans need your help because that doesn't really move the needle. There have been attempts before to say we Christians need help, but that also doesn't really move the needle, as we'll talk about I'm sure, in a bit about later periods. But uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Nazareth, these holy places are under threat, does, does set fire to Western Europe. And we suddenly see a movement of maybe 60, maybe 80, some people think maybe even 100,000 people heading out east to try and defend the places where Jesus Christ lived, died, and was buried, and lived, died, and, was, was, uh, and rose from the dead. So control of the Christian holy sites are important. The key question, I guess, which most historians haven't really asked, is how come it took 450 years since Jerusalem fell to the Arabs or to the Muslims, uh, to to respond. And the key is that the situation in the East in the 1090s suddenly becomes dramatically different and dramatically worse. And so that opens up a whole chapter of crusades that runs through for the next couple of hundred years. The Latin West, the Western parts of Europe set up colonies in Antioch, in Tripoli, and in Jerusalem. And over the next hundred years, they try and hang on to them until Saladin in 1187 knocks out uh, Jerusalem, recovers it, and uh, that then resets what the shape of the Holy Land, Christianity, religions, Middle Ages looks like. But Peter, let's keep our focus on the Turks. So the Turks have come into Anatolia, they've built cities in places like Konya, previously Iconium. Yeah, I don't think they've built anything particularly. I think Conquest is is something slightly different. I mean, you want to take control of, of key access routes, both for trade, but also for, for defensive purposes. Iconium is a big city in the centre of Anatolia. It's called Konya in Turkish. 
But I think it doesn't, the control of cities doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to flourish. In fact, quite often, conquest means that they go backwards. And the challenge is if you're a new overlord, you know, you want, you want access to their tax take. And to get access to the tax state, you need people to trade. And to get people to trade, you need stability. So there's a constant tension between military pressure, a- attempt to extract tribute, and try to make an economy work. But when you go to Anatolia today, you can still see these beautiful caravanserais and these gorgeous madrasas and, and, and mosques built by the Seljuks at this time. I mean, they're some of the most gorgeous things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're, they're great builders. I mean, they are, they are better at those kinds of institutional structures uh, prayer towers you know, dotted all over Central Asia, likewise, Mausolea, and so on. You know, they're not particularly interested in, in building, um, you know, from what we can tell, civic institutions, shops, arcades, theatres, the stuff that we would associate with a kind of typical Roman city. Um, and the, the challenge is what you do with the local population, right? So when you turn up as a new overlord, um, it's difficult to know whether you think the right thing to do is to allow everyone to keep their faith whatever that might be, and practice it however they want? Or do you try to convert them? Do you tax them at a different level to people you bring with you? But also, how do you encourage settlement from other Turkic peoples? And why on earth would you move to Konya if you were able to live in Baghdad? So millions of people around the world have been watching Eterul, this, this picture of the early Turks in Anatolia. And, and the picture in, the, in that um, amazing drama that has become one of the most watched dramas anywhere in the world is of these early Turks living in tents, being basically nomadic, sort of milking cows and, and, and riding around on horses. Is that a pretty accurate picture or are they more sophisticated than that, uh, that drama would lead one to believe? Oh, gosh. Well, why is that not sophisticated? Tell me about that. That is sophisticated. Have they not got settled palaces and institutions and bureaucracies like our favourite Byzantine Byzantines? Yes, but that, that's how we do things. So, you know, we think settled, you know, you have art galleries and, and palaces that sit still and, and, you know, but I think the mobile uh, and the connection with the understanding of ecologies, I, I don't think that is that we should look at that as being you know, somehow inferior or less sophisticated. <clears throat> I think it's it's highly adaptable. Uh, it's highly successful. Uh, it's extremely sensitive to moving things around. And in fact, in many ways, we sort of forget that some of those things are things that our own courts in Western Europe do too. You know, the, the king is constantly on the move in England, for example, taking tents with him and setting himself up and so on. So it's just the way we, we think of the, the you know, the, that peoples outside Europe are somehow, you know, they don't watch properly and they don't, and that's part of a, a very problematic way in which we think about history, where we sort of think that the other is kind of different and, and more awkward than us. Yeah. I mean, some of my happiest days have been in a Winnebago. I mean, I'm just saying, uh, you know, don't <laughs> knock it till you've tried it. Um, we've been going for over 40 minutes. We're still, can you believe it, 300 years from the end point of this amazing story. So what I reckon is maybe we should just pause here and then we'll get Peter back next week to take us right to the end of Byzantium and set us up for that fateful event, 1453, the fall of Constantinople. Till then, though, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Durimple. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 